This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome to another episode of Business Impact. It's great to have you along as the heat starts rising and the summer is just around the corner. We've had some extraordinary weather. It's actually difficult to do podcasts when you have some of this more sunnier weather, but we do have a dependable flow of interesting guests and there's so much to talk about. I mean, it's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse at the moment. Unfortunately, you might remember those four horsemen, the conquest, the war, the famine and death. We seem to have at least three or four, thankfully, not four in every country, but there's certainly some very bloody and difficult to watch events happening, of course, in Ukraine. We're living in a highly inflationary environment compared to many years ago. And of course, COVID still hanging around in the background, not at the same heightened levels, thankfully. And our old friend, of course, Brexit is still out there in the wings as well. So it's a difficult time. But in all this gloom, it's also an interesting time. And there's a lot of underlying trends playing out that are not necessarily always discernible in front of us. In today's podcast, we're going to be particularly looking at the world of globalization, the world of internationalization, and what companies and organizations more generally are to make of all this stuff. I mean, when we talk on this podcast about all these events, and we've covered all of those four that I mentioned there two seconds ago, we've covered them from different perspectives, we've had a lot of different voices on them, different lenses looking at different things. But a lot of the time, you know, there's a lot of just ordinary people trying to get on with their jobs, trying to manage companies, manage organizations, direct their strategy and leadership for the future and make sense of what is a very noisy and kind of edgy external environment that they're having to navigate through. And my guest today is the perfect person to talk about this. This is going to be a high-end, absorbing half-hour conversation, so very much one to bring with you on your walk and see what you make of this conversation because it's going to be very interesting. And that guest is an Associate Professor in Strategy and International Business here at UCD Business School. She's Dr. Dorota Piaska-Ofska, and she is one of my most important guests because she's going to talk about all these issues that we've highlighted. She's been on the faculty for a number of years. She looks at things like national culture, distance in business, what top management teams bring to the table in terms of leadership, biculturalism, and of course, international experience of managers. All of those things are her research interests. She's been at the school for a number of years, took her PhD from Tilburg, of course, a city in the southern part of the Netherlands near Eindhoven. And she's really been zoning in on some of these big global issues that I've been talking about in the introduction to this podcast. You're very welcome along to the podcast, Dorota. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, and uh, you're you're the perfect person to talk about. I want to make this particular conversation very wide-ranging, global, not just in terms of literally, but also metaphorically in terms of the topics that we can touch on because your research interest and your academic um, subject matter expertise is in all of these areas of how companies and organizations can navigate uh, difficult international environments, how they can bring in the kind of people they want to drive their organizations forward, and what are the most effective types of managers at the top of organizations. So we'll be touching on all of those over the next few minutes. First of all, um, tell me how you came to UCD, where you're from, and and what a little bit about some of those research interests that that I mentioned. Thank you. Uh, As you may uh, see from my name, probably I grew up in Poland. I'm Polish by background. Uh, And it was an interesting time. I grew up during the communist time and I witnessed the economic transformation 
as it was happening. And actually, some of the masterminds behind the economic transformation of the early 1990s were actually my teachers at university. So that really had um, quite an influential effect on me in formative way in terms of how I think about the world, how I think about international business, how I understand global forces influencing countries, businesses, organizations and individuals in them. So I think that's where that breadth of interest really is coming from. Um, as you've mentioned, I did my PhD in the Netherlands and I've worked uh at um, Dutch universities as well as the university here at UCD in Ireland and um, in Singapore. So that's the breadth of my international experience, if you will. And uh, Dorotha, in terms of where you, you come to Ireland, you come at an interesting time. You've been here a good few years now, it should be pointed out. It's been an amazing linkage between the Polish community and Ireland. How have you found just living here, quality of life, differences from home, etc.? What kind of things have, have kind of stuck out for you? I think that the one most visible positive uh, aspect for me was how welcoming Irish people have been. Uh, and I have my own uh, hypothesis as to why this is the case. I think as a nation, you understand what it takes to be a migrant. Um, and it's really appreciated by migrants how, how welcoming this place has been. And, and naturally, there are a lot of similarities between uh, Irish and Polish cultures. Uh, we share the Catholic background, which uh, has an influence on how we think, how we process information, um, the perspectives we tend to take, which makes it relatively easy to adapt. So long you, you can understand the language, I think that that barrier, once that barrier is out of the way, it's relatively easy to adapt and uh, function effectively. So for me, it has been a very positive experience overall. Now, you, you've got a very wide palette in terms of your research interests. You, you're obviously very busy. I, I was obviously doing research, as I do for all our guests to come on. You, you've got a lot going on, a lot of research output. How, how did COVID sit with you? Uh, did, did it change much your, your working life? Or was, was it a difficult period? What, what was that whole, uh, I was going to say era, but still with us, of course, though, but it's certainly tailing off. And how did you kind of manage through that? Because it has hit academics in different ways. Yes, absolutely. I think I was one of the people who maybe um, were challenged by the fact that we had a period of homeschooling. Um, so, um, you know, making sure that my children were able to progress with whatever they needed to progress and, and supporting them, obviously, emotionally in the difficult times that, that we had been through was quite consuming. So obviously that slows down some of the other activities that, that are ongoing. And I think also when you think about the challenges associated with teaching, which is a big part of our job, that has changed so much uh, during COVID. Uh, there was a lot of uh, additional um, effort going on to make sure that we can deliver the same quality experience to our students as we would have before COVID. Um, so all of that has, to an extent, slowed down some of the research-related activity, but it also fueled a lot of new ideas. So I think on balance, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's negative. It, it, it may not be overall positive, but certainly, uh, you know, there, there are good things about uh, about that period that happened. Okay, well, let's let's look forward as much as we can and look into the murk because things are, are not necessarily clear. One of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation was really to talk about organizations, uh, you know, and how they're dealing with what well, is a very, very clouded international environment. Now, people will say, isn't it always? But I do think you can make a case that there are events that are somewhat unprecedented, at least in recent decades, probably not if you take a, a longer view back. I mentioned four of them. I've just picked out inflation 
Ukraine, obviously, again, they're sort of linked in some ways. COVID is a two year, two and a half year old story. But depending on how the virus evolves, it could kind of be less of a story, but equally it could roaring back into the front of our consciousness as well. And then, as I said, a, a small little baby problem of Brexit as well is still around the uh, Irish Sea border, it's still a cause of a lot of difficulty and tension, certainly between Ireland, the UK and the European Union as well. And a lot of people, the, the big meaning they take out of these four events is that globalisation itself is at a bit of a, a turning point. It's certainly going to be slowing down the things that we've taken for granted for decades that we can get the kind of products and services we want easily at the price we want, you know, at the touch of a button, a mobile phone, app, etc. That's not necessarily guaranteed in the future. Our energy supply is not guaranteed. And, and just this idea that we can kind of get what we want from the world when we want it at a time where we want is not necessarily going to be as smooth in the future. And that's led a lot of people to say we're in an era of deglobalization, etc. And some people saying uh, nationalism is, is now going to collide with that globalization trend of recent decades. Where do you stand on that big question? And I know it is a big one, so we've only got a certain amount of time. But what's your own sense of, is this just a brief pause or breather from the, the overall globalization process? Or, or is there actually somewhat of a reversal going on. Where, where, where do you stand on that, on that, that big uh, imponderable? Yeah, thank you for asking this question. And I will try to keep my answer short, although I could talk for days about it, probably. Um, if I, in a nutshell, when you look at this, there are two main camps of researchers, commentators uh, on globalization, people who are interested in the phenomenon. And, and one, camp would, one camp would be the believers in, in globalization being in decline, just as you've outlined for all those reasons that you've outlined. And then there is the other camp who tend to focus on um, maybe trade flows and international investment flows. And if we look at the data here, what we do see is fluctuations over decades, over extended periods of time. We see fluctuations in international trade and investment flows. Um, but these fluctuations and these flows are broadly in line with the wider economic cycles. And, and when you look at this from this perspective, I think globalization is far from that. Now, if you add to this international migration as another aspect of how interconnected the, the global economy is, how interconnected societies are, we are seeing increasing numbers of migrants, including as a proportion of world population. And this will continue to fuel some of those pro-globalization forces. So I would be in that camp believing that globalization is not dead, it's not going away. It is, however, changing uh, for all those reasons that you've outlined. So I think overall what we're going to start seeing is maybe a shift uh, in terms of where from and where to, where to the trade and investment flow. And I would expect to see maybe more international trade and investment within friendly economic blocks, if we can call them like that, friendly economic blocks of countries and allies that perhaps share fundamental values. Um, and as a consequence of that, as a consequence of all the events that we've that we've been witnessing recently, um, we're already seeing uh, shifts in terms of maybe some reshoring happening. So bringing production from overseas markets back home or what we call nearshoring. So bringing it back closer to home. 
And there is also another trend which you haven't uh, mentioned, but I think it's terribly important in that whole uh, globalization debate is the role of new technologies. So one um, example that I could give here is additive manufacturing. That's basically about 3D printing and the emergence uh, of that technology and the increased ability uh, of companies to use that will definitely affect uh, the global value chains, so where things are being manufactured and global supply chains where things are being shipped from and to. So to some extent, the, the globalization shifts that we'll be seeing will be will be driven by these new technologies. And Dorothy, in, in terms of, uh, I always like to take a little brief a parochial turn uh, when people make commentary about globalization, because Ireland is obviously heavily dependent on the globalization trend of recent decades, or you could say for most of the 20th century. You're talking about uh, nearshoring, onshoring, reshoring. There's different definitions that attach to those uh, phrases. But in, in terms of Ireland, we're, we're so heavily open. We are an export-led economy, a foreign direct invest-oriented economy. Do you think Ireland could be among the winners or losers in this process that, that, that you're talking about? I would be more optimistic than pessimistic in this respect. And uh, if history can can teach us any lessons, if you look at Ireland over the past few decades, I think Ireland has proven that it can and will be able to move up the value added ladder, if I can call it like that, in terms of the goods and the services uh, that, that are produced and traded internationally from Ireland. Um, so I think the key will be to maintain that ability to continuously add more and more value, move up that value added ladder. Uh, and what that means is that we'll need to continue having a, a really strong supply of highly skilled uh, workforce, workforce that's entrepreneurially minded, curious outgoing, uh, open-minded. And for that, um, we do as a country need uh, really world-class universities that can provide that kind of education and that kind of research to enable this sort of highly skilled, entrepreneurially-minded, open-minded workforce. So if there is one internal to Ireland source of concern I'd have, uh, it would be the chronic underinvestment of the university and research sectors in this country. But uh, it is not too late yet to remedy this. So I'd be more on the optimistic rather than the pessimistic side here. That's interesting. So there's so much emphasis on the, the physical limitations that Ireland has, the property issue, the infrastructure, the tax issue obviously gets a good ventilation as well. But you're actually saying the piece you'd be paying most attention to is the human capital. That's where we are probably are are at our most vulnerable. That would be my view of this, um, I think, definitely. Okay, well, that's worth watching because it doesn't get as much oxygen as, as some of the other issues, as, as you know, when we talk about FDI. Let's move on as well to talk a little bit about polarisation. And I don't mean that just politically. We're all used to the, the great divisiveness. You can see it playing out on social media every day. But also polarisation globally, it, it seems the world is moving into very much clearly defined blocks You've obviously got a, a re-energized Russian nationalist uh, in the Kremlin who's, who's moving the chess pieces around there. there. There's talk about different parts of the EU fracturing. You know, you've got places like uh, Hungary in particular in the news for, for breaking away from the broad EU consensus. So there seems to be a lot of polarization, a lot of fractures going on at the moment just globally. And organizations are looking at this and they're probably trying to make sense of it. And sometimes they'll have a you know, they'll have a geopolitical advisor or the people who look at government risk and so on. There'll be somebody in the organization that will be looking at these deeper issues. But 
In terms of boards and management, uh, what do you think they should make of all this polarization and, and geopolitical tension we're talking about? Like, can you just give us an, an insight into kind of um, what it would look like from a boardroom table at the moment? It must be a very confusing picture and must make it difficult to, to, to kind of make the correct decisions. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I think um, I like the way you've set it up at two levels. So we have this sort of social or individual level of polarization, and it's it's also the macro level of of uh, polarization and geopolitical tension. I think from the perspective of uh, decision makers, uh, really what they would be likely looking at is the sources of uncertainty that organizations need to grapple with. And there are a lot of them at the moment. So if we just pick one, let's take cost inflation, that would be a key issue. And, and you know, if I were a decision maker, I'd, I'd love to have a crystal ball to look into to see where inflation is going to go and when it's going to end. But I don't have a crystal ball. So what I need to be doing is um, maybe developing some educated predictions, developing scenarios, uh, preparing alternative plans, depending on what I think is is uh, likely to happen in the future. Now, this will inevitably mean that some more costs would have to be factored in. Uh, even if we forget the inflation itself, there will be a cost associating with our ability to adapt quickly being resilient in that sense uh, and being ready to implement alternative scenarios. Some slack will be needed for that. So I think this is what, what will be in the minds of decision makers, some of them anyway. Now, if we look for a moment at that sort of more micro or meso level, um, I think organizations will also need to, to contend with some new sources of challenges that individuals may face, so individual employees, um, and also maybe interpersonal tensions, if not conflict. And here is where interpersonal skills will be very critical. Now, if we look again at data in Ireland, um, there is about 11, 12 percent migrants at the moment. And Ireland is not necessarily one of the most diverse uh, countries population wise in the world. If you add to that second generation migrants, there is a substantial proportion of people who come from other international background backgrounds than Irish uh, themselves. So I think among those interpersonal skills, the cross-cultural abilities are going to be critically important. So having that open mind, sort of global mindset will be very, very important in organizations uh, to succeed. So uh, so the, these would be the sort of two things that I think should be on the minds of decision makers, the sort of bigger external uncertainties, but also internally, how are we going to uh, make sure that our people can work effectively together. Now, you have a, a very long uh, history in research in the area of the international background of leaders and executives and, and, and people at the senior role uh, level in many companies. Uh, just tell us a little bit, because it's, it's, a, it's a very complex area. There's a lot of research floating around in this space, but let's just go back a little bit. How important, at a, at just at a very basic level, do you think it is for executives and leaders to have international experience? Is, is it important, but not that important? Or is it not important at all? Can you just give us some some idea of where you place that, uh, how important it is to have that uh, that, that background? Um, I think having that kind of background on the team, so not necessarily every single one person, but having that kind of background on the team is critically important. 
Um, and it link, links to that broader concept of cognitive diversity on the team. So it's not just the international background. It could be other sources of, sources of diversity, in, of thought diversity in how we approach, solve problems, diversity of ideas, perspectives. That's what we mean by cognitive diversity. Now, I am particularly interested in international experience um, because it has been also my experience. Uh, and and I, I, I like to understand what I'm going through, what my children are going through. Um, and uh, what impact it has uh, on the way we think, on the way we make decisions, and ultimately um, among the decision makers in organizations, what impact that may have on uh, the performance of these firms. Uh, so long story short, international experience is good to have on the team. Some of our latest research, uh, however, found that international experience is a rather slow teacher. So it takes a long time, a lot of exposure for people to uh, begin to understand uh, what they don't know. And this is critically important for our ability to um, maybe appreciate uh, that we need input of others. Um, not to be overconfident in the decisions we make. So just a little bit of experience may actually make us feel a little bit overconfident. There's that concept of beginner's bubble. We are in that beginner's bubble. We've learned something and, and we feel like we've learned it all. But in fact, we still know very little. So that's the danger area there. We need a lot of that expertise to avoid a lot of international experience to avoid that that beginner's bubble, bubble danger. But I think for top teams, it's critically important to know um, whether they can rely on that international expertise that they have, or maybe if it's better to source additional input in that respect. So long story short, it is a great teacher to international experience, but it is, it is a slow one. Yes, and, and let's tease out that phrase cognitive diversity a little bit more, because this is like all hot button issues, there's there's a lot of perspectives and the debate on it is very unsettled e even now. I mean, the, the critique I'm presuming, and you know this area more than, than than I would, is that you know there are right decisions and there are wrong decisions, and you, you can you can move into a kind of a relativist position if you if everyone has a sort of a an authenticity to their view that decisions have to be made the right decisions have to be made, that all decisions and all thinking is not necessarily as good as other thinking. We have to pick something. We have to make a decision. Is that the main critique? And is, is that something you've, you've grappled with in your own work, that, that, that kind of counter argument? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think what we need to be mindful of is that we're thinking about strategic decisions here or decisions that involve judgment because we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. We have different sources of that uncertainty that interact with one another in complex way. Teasing that out is, is non-trivial. And I think this is exactly where diversity of knowledge, diversity of perspectives, different ways of approaching a problem uh, comes into picture. And it's really important to have that. You are only going to be able to make as good a decision as um, uh, the number, let's say, of the alternatives that you come up with, only some of them will be really, really good. The more you can identify as potential opportunities, the higher the chance that one of them will be particularly good. And for that, you need diversity of input, diversity of perspectives. 
Uh, so I would definitely be in favor of having that diversity on, on teams. Now, there are downsides. No doubt there are downsides. And, and the main one, perhaps, is that when we have people who come from very different perspectives to a decision-making table, there will be a lot of debate that may take a long time and it may be difficult to come to an agreement. Um, or some people may be left a little unhappy with a decision that's that's been made. Um, so, so that uh, efficiency is is perhaps in terms of time, that efficiency is perhaps um, a, a, con a concern or a critique of, of, uh, of that type of approach to making decisions. Um, there's also a possibility that when we differ so much in our views and perspectives, uh, some personal level conflict could arise. But with good processes in place and with good interpersonal skills, this should not become an issue, I would hope anyway. Now, again, when we think about these types of decisions, strategic decisions, uh, I think ultimately a sound debate contributes to achieving a better solution. Uh, but it, it does something else on top of that. It enables us to understand each other's as decision makers at that decision making table and accept that decision. And a decision can only be as good as, as what gets implemented in the end. So you would want to have a level of agreement acceptance and that comes through healthy debate. Yes, and I mean, you often hear this catch cry that the workplace is not a democracy, but equally it's not an autocracy either. So trying to get that balance right where you have debate, but as you said, sometimes you don't have the luxury of time Sometimes you don't have the luxury of space to allow a debate to happen. Sometimes your your rivals might be more nimble and, and you're, you're losing out because you're spending time in endless almost college debating society environments. So how do you get that balance right between allowing that discussion to happen, but retaining the efficiency of, of kind of good decision making uh, speed? I think what's important to, to distinguish here is the type of decisions that are being made. So for the more routine type of decisions, you don't want to have huge amount of debate. Rather, what you want is a set of procedures, uh, maybe a checklist or a playbook. This is what we do in those type of decision situations, step by step. And sometimes you, th this can be done for even some of the more complex strategic decisions. So, for example, some organizations that uh, do a lot of acquisitions or do a lot of alliances would have a unit um, uh, in within the organization that's that's dealing with just that. And that unit has a process that um, they would have developed over time with experience codified to an extent. So to the extent that's possible, you try to routinize and optimize those decisions. But when it comes to decisions that are unique, that don't have precedence, um, that involve a lot of judgment, a lot of uncertainty. That's exactly when you can't afford to go wrong. That's where that debate is critically important. Yes, and it's, it's working. It's worth taking time over it, isn't it? Working, it's worth devoting a bit of additional time to get the decision right in the first place. Now, I know in your research, there's a whole community as there is around all research areas. And I know you've done a number of papers on how much having an internationally experienced team adds to the performance, the organizational performance. I don't know if you read much about this. It's not for everybody, but there's a big debate going on in Irish banking at the moment about whether we should lift the pay cap 
on leading bank executives. And the, the reason people are saying to do that is, or one of the reasons is, it will open the field out beyond just those who've worked in Irish banking alone and bring in a lot of international executives who've worked in international banking. And then that you get a bigger recruitment pool and you might get a better outcome in terms of the selection of the candidate. So to bring it back to you then, Dorota, in terms of the organisational performance, is there any way we can actually very firmly link per organisational performance with bringing in these international managers and say one leads to another or is the data not really telling us that it's, it's, it's a little bit more murky? From the data that we looked at, uh, and obviously this is one sample in one specific context, uh, but there was definitely a very robust, clear link between the international expertise on top management teams and uh performance of firms following internationalization decisions made by these teams. And what we could see is, um, as, as I've mentioned before, that high levels of such expertise were definitely positive uh, for us when it comes to consequent organizational performance. So when decisions about, let's say, an international acquisition were carried out by a team with a high level of international experience where individuals would have spent a lot of time living, working abroad in more than one or two different countries, when all of that came combined on the team, these people were able to make decisions that led to higher performance ultimately. However, at lower levels of experience, we could actually see a negative effect, uh, which we explained by overconfidence, maybe, in the sense of some of these teams with a little bit of international exposure, a little bit of international insight, would have thought they know more than they actually did. Right. Too, too much knowledge is a dangerous thing, literally, it sounds like what you're saying. <laughs> that beginner's bubble effect has been coming through from that data very consistently, um, very robustly. So, so there definitely is something there. And it's certainly consistent with what we know from research in psychology and education about how we learn from experience as humans. Um, that 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 initial effect of you know having a sense of learned a lot that I've learned a lot already while in fact I only know very little is is actually a common experience. Well, if we accept your your opening contention that globalization is certainly not stopping, it may be at worst slowing down slightly or taking a brief detour, but it, it's onward uh, progress cannot be questioned. Really, that's that's the way it's going. If we accept that um, contention that you've made, and I, I think I'd probably sympathise with it, but um, are, does that make you optimistic about the future overall? And this is where I'm going to have to kind of bring our conversation towards an end. Uh, I've obviously listed out, I've been <laughs> a little bit unkind talking about uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but it does seem that our kind of the there's a sort of slight end of days feeling sometimes when you read the news on your social media feeds at the moment between those four events, and there's so many more, uh, taking a slightly Western snap on them, but there are so many negative things out there. Do, do, do you overall feel optimistic or pessimistic as we head into the summer about uh, world events and, and also just how organizations are going to get through the, the next year or so? Yeah, I think in the short term, there are certainly a lot of clouds on the horizon. Um, and I am very worried about a lot of the things that you've mentioned uh, in particular. Um, the, the the war in Ukraine is 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 is, is a big big cloud uh, on my on my mind definitely and then longer term uh, and you haven't mentioned that is is obviously climate change that would be a big big worry now with that said um, 
in, in my line of work, I am privileged to work with the younger generations. And I derive a lot of optimism from what they think and how they think. So, so working with them, um, I can see that they do have uh, the type of insight and the type of strength and, and the drive to change the world for the better. So, you know, with, with all that's going on, with all that doom and gloom, I would be optimistic because of them. Okay, well, sort of power to the people, power to the younger people. That's what keeps you going. Does for me as well as somebody who's been teaching in the college in recent years. I've really enjoyed it and I've enjoyed their perspective. And I've enjoyed this conversation. We've started on uh, a gloomier note, but we finished on an up note, which is always great in these conversations. It's been varied. We've covered a lot of stuff. We've talked about organisations and how they navigate through. I think there's a lot of practical kind of little nuggets in there that will be interesting to managers and leaders leading organisations at this difficult and challenging time. Thank you very much for the conversation. It's been great to have you as a guest. The voice you heard was Dr. Dorota Piaskowska. She's been great a guest and we'll talk to her again, no doubt, because these events will keep on changing, keep revolving around. So until our next episode, good afternoon, good morning, whatever time you're listening to us at. Okay, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of David Corscadden, Ed Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music